Okay. So anyway, uh, when you called, you were in Duca, and now that I posed the question in a humorous way, you're laughing. Yeah, because that's, yeah. that's why I called you. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you do you chase her down the street? Or do you do without her happily? Or do you try to replace her? Do without her happily is the... Is the right one uh chasing her down the street is the one that i want to do <laughs> uh-huh okay that's the that's the uh, oh. that's usually what well, i do yeah right well the actual the third option is um let us say uh the 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 other side of freedom in other words there's two kinds of freedom freedom from and freedom too. And now that you've lost her, you can be free from her or you can be free to replace her. Mm. But there's fe there's fear in that second one because even if I replace her, the same thing can happen again. Ah, yes, right. Unless and it has happened again. <laughs> oh, this is not the first. Yes, uh huh. Okay. Um, that one is a little bit more complicated, but uh, we need to start with the point of uh, chasing her down the street, and and talk about that, because one of the things that's going on is. Um, there's actually the sutras number 86, and that is in the king section of the uh, uh, Majjhima Nikaya. The 80s are the king sections. And in this sutta, 86 or 87, now that I think of it, it's the Angulimala, this uh, number 86. So I think it's 87, but it's one of the 80s. And the name of it, of the sutta, is grief comes from those who are dear. Mm -hmm. Okay, now mostly we talk and think about the Dhamma in the sense of dealing with the world and sometimes dealing with physical objects. But this super specifically is talking about dealing with uh, other people and the loss of those other people or uh, let us say the ups and downs of the relationship. Uh, and um, basically, this uh, I'll go ahead and tell you the sutta because it's a very interesting little sutta. It's just that the Buddha was talking about this, and while he was talking about it in whatever setting it was, someone heard what he said and passed by and heard what the Buddha said and um, then went to play gambling whatever the version of card games were 2,500 years ago, I think that they played bones or dice. But in any case, um, uh, while he was playing dice, he told everyone playing dice about what the Buddha had said, that grief comes from those who are dear. 
and that someone then heard that. And this woman who heard that happened to have been working in the palace. That in fact, she knew the queen. And so she took it to the queen and told her that the Buddha had said that grief comes from those who are dear. And so she told, the queen told King Pasanati. And um, the this woman that had told the queen, that worked for the queen, by the way, this was the beginning of a relationship because the king and queen now sent this woman to hear what the Buddha had to say and ask questions on behalf of King Pasanati. So she was a kind of a runner now. And as she was doing that and began to pick up the Dhamma, she actually became Sotapan and then quit the uh, the work of um, uh, King Pasanati and came and joined the monks, which was uh, a big deal for the king to lose his emissary to the Buddha, <laughs> to the Buddha. <laughs> And so uh, this story of those who um, are dear cause grief. Nobody likes that. We say, oh, I want to have a family because if I have a family, my children will bring joy to me. I mean, this is one of the advertisements. It's actually yeah. built right into our genes. But the actual, the opposite is true in the sense of you can have pleasure without them but if you have pleasure with them when they go away you will miss it sons argue with their dads and it hurts the dad's heart greatly for the son to rebel rather than understanding that rebellion is the natural thing okay now this goes right along in fact this is uh, an important teaching on the second noble truth about greed and ill will and delusion because greed is actually um that's a kind of a strong word in the english language it's probably not a very good word to use because wanting will do for dukkha we don't need to be all the way into full-blown greed but when we are that's when things are really dukkha for a whole lot of people uh and so uh, an example of that, by the way, would be bank robbers. Now, it's possible to go uh, along with a bank robbery because um, it's the thing to do or our friends are doing it or it seems like an entertaining thing and maybe there's some profit in it. But the guys who plan the bank robbery, they really want that money and they'll go to any lengths to get it. OK, that's greed. Uh, but it doesn't have to be that strong that in fact if uh if we have wanting of anything that we don't have that's a definition of dukkha and so here's the sequence of events and i often use the concept of a car because young men know about this one that we see that car maybe the advertisement or somebody selling it or we get the eye on it and then we want that car gotta have that car then we get that car and we're all happy for joy but now we got to work on that car and and polish it and do all kinds of stuff and then the car gets in a wreck or it gets stolen or it gets uh, uh broken down 
in fact, it could go so far as that you burn the motor out, so you got to replace the motor and you don't know what you're doing and you wind up not knowing how to put it back together again and all of that. I mean, I've been there, done that. Look how yeah. much grief we have before we get it, while we have it, and after we lose it. That's the sequence of events. So when people say, I like it, be very careful about liking because when we like it, we want it and we're headed for Duke of whether we get it or not. And if we do get it and then lose it, that's the big Duke. Mm -hmm. In other words, you got along without that girl before you met her. You can get along without her now, but now that you've had a taste of it, you want more of it. Mm -hmm. And you can't have it. All right. So that's the point is to recognize not just in this particular episode, but use this as a benchmark for being very careful about your relationships with people. Because you are going to lose every one of them. Or the other option is they, they lose you while you lose you too. But you're going to lose everything that you ever made. And that's painful. Yeah. The closer the friend, the warmer the touch, the more the grief. Then in fact, I would be honest with you to say that the largest grief that I've ever experienced in my life was not just long ago, it was kind of recent, and it was over the death of a dog. I grieved over the loss of that dog because I missed him. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then in a way, I kind of used the dog to let out all the grief that I never let myself have over the death of my mom and my dad and family and also this, that, and the other job <laughs> and all the motorbikes that I've ever owned. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's the whole thing is, is that we there's a grieving process that we all go through. Some of us do it well, wisely, and I'm giving you today the wisdom to recognize that this grieving process is because of your own grasping and clinging and wanting and desire. And so now we can bring wisdom into it in the sense of how we're going to treat our relationship with others. In fact, with my mom, because she was heading for years and years deeper into Alzheimer's to the point that she um, actually became quite upset in longing and desiring for me when I would call. When are you coming home? Oh, I want to see you, that kind of thing. So I actually put her in a state of longing and clinging by calling her. So I even stopped calling her because I knew that I was giving her suffering that with the Alzheimer's out of sight is out of mind completely. Mm. And so she's much better off by not having me around. Mm. And I gave myself permission to do that happily rather than uh, prematurely grieving over the loss of my mom, because in fact, that was the recognition that she's dead. My mom, whoever my mom was, is dead. And this lady is not my mom. Mm. Uh, and so that helped with that considerably so that when she actually did die, it was like, well, 
<laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> yeah. The only regret that I have was is that in our family we have a tradition uh, of people living to age a hundred. My grandmother, my great great grandmother, my uh, my grandmother, my great grandmother, and my great grand great great grandmother all lived before uh, uh, over a hundred. My great great grandmother was born in 1859, and when I was 14. I was a pallbearer at her funeral. That's how long I knew her in her 90s and into the uh, into the hundreds. So um, with my <clears throat> with my grandmother, she had three sisters, the four of them. All of them lived over 100 except for one who died at the age of 97. And they call that an infant mortality. Because <laughs> she didn't make it over the hump. <laughs> Well, my mom didn't make it over the hump either. She died at 96, I think, 97. That's still pretty long. That's still good <laughs> compared to most people. Well, uh, it's got something to do with the genes, or maybe it's got something to do with the farming. No, I don't think my great-great-grandmother was a farmer ever in her life, but my mom was when she was young, and my grandmother was even into her 90s and so was my great-grandmother but my great-great-grandmother was not a farmer as i in any case that's the whole point is is that if you have a relationship with someone know that that in advance that that relationship could be over at any time uh i guess i was i was telling like I was telling myself like, oh, now that I'm on the path and then I was, I met this girl, I'm like, oh, this is, this is the enlightened relationship now. Like, I'm like, because there's, there's so much harmony, so much harmony and so much lightheartedness when I was with her because um, there was less me there to mess it up. Right. Mm -hmm. But you know, it, I guess uh, it doesn't always turn out that way, even if it, it at, in the moment, at certain times in the moment, she is, there's no dukkha in her. Like, I could see that, like, she is in the satisfaction, and I could feel that, mm -hmm. but... It changes, changes in an instant. <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, uh, do you actually know what happened? Um, yeah, I guess I got into um like if 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 we're in if the conversation that we we're having goes into let's say a political direction or um something about like world views like i tend to be uncompromising and i might say something that um makes her very angry 
Uh, because, In other words, the two of you are playing a game called What About Isms? Yeah. Yeah, okay. that's it. What about that political party and what about this political party and all of that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. people can get into arguments over all kinds of what about isms. In fact, the only thing that people can really argue over generally is a what about ism, even if they're arguing over what they're holding. I mean, a physical object, this is mine, no, this is mine. Uh, that's well, still a, a con conceptualization. But the, the real point is, is that when you are arguing over this is mine, no, this is mine, and it really doesn't even exist. It is way out there someplace. It's not a physical object. Like, in the, uh, like this is my cup. No, this is my cup, right? That's real. But what you guys are arguing over is not even real. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. Hold on one sec. Can we get my water? <laughs> Yeah, um, not even real. So I, I, I'm my own worst enemy in this thing where if she brings up a whataboutism, what I could have done is just go along with it and just be happy with her and just like, yeah, just agree. Um, because it doesn't matter. It's not something that's a real issue. It's just a, it's a concept, right? Concept. It's not mm -hmm. a, I don't have to agree with her like political views. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, here's a way of thinking about it. And this goes in, in all kinds of directions, actually. Um, and that is, is that we all have views in the sense of viewpoints, world views. And when anything interrupts our worldview, we don't like it. Mm -hmm. And everyone is like that. So if we can see that our worldview causes me pain, then their worldview is causing her pain. Then mm -hmm. it's better to us to go like this. Not in the sense of having the same worldview, but to see that we're both together in the fact that we give ourselves pain for our worldviews. That in fact, this is another way of expressing that um, uh, grief comes from those who are dear. Because my worldview is dear. And when it is attacked, I feel attacked. Now, what, what do you think? Um, I totally agree with you. And that's, I, that's kind of what I was saying to her. Like she's she's making herself. Well, she suffer. didn't get it. That's okay. That's all right. She didn't get it. Yeah, she didn't get it. And but I feel like I don't know. I think I it's know. not good to try to try to be a teacher to your girlfriend, like a teach, like a. Well, not a school mom. Like a pre, like like if I'm telling her, like not a preacher, right? A not preacher, a I'm better yeah. than you are, right? Uh huh. Yeah. But rather like, look how both we suffer because both of us have conflicting um, uh, attachments. Yeah. But we're both suffering because we have attachments. 
rather than complaining to each other about my attachment is different than yours. Look at the underlying situation and here we are both attaching. Uh, yeah. And if she's not going to buy that, then that's okay. That's okay. It's all right. That in fact, it goes uh, in many different directions, as I was saying before. An example of that would be, um, let us say that there is a general big umbrella of things that would be considered Buddhism, just like there's a big umbrella of Christianity. And so we can talk about them both. And in fact, we can we can talk about Christianity, but we're really talking about Buddhism because we're talking about the same thing and that there is a great variety. All right. Now, one of the teachings that is uh, um, very specific within Christianity is do unto others the way that you want to be done to or the golden rule. And also they talk about agape or uh, Christian love and Christian fellowship, right? They all agree on those things. Mm -hmm. And yet Christians will wind up arguing with each other over all kinds of doctoral issues. Rather than them both coming to that position that we're both Christians and therefore we have this in common. Let's enjoy that and not be worried about our differences in viewpoints about religion, especially since, (laughs) and they don't know this, but it's all magical thought anyway, that that Christianity has the core of the teachings of Jesus right there in their hands, and they won't pay attention to it because they're too much into the magic. Yeah. The trinities, the Jesus rising up into the heavens, the sky daddy, Heavens and hells and angels and saints and um, calling soulmates. I mean, the list just goes on and on about all this magical thinking. Well, uh, us Westerners came out of that culture. And so we bring that same kind of magical thinking into Buddhism. And yet Buddhism has a very wide variety of the ways of teaching and including a lot of the magic as well as in a few places, we recognize magic as magic and not deal with it. Now, I have a very, very broad definition of the word magic. And it, uh, specifically, there's kinds of magic in the sense of magic tricks, prestidigitation, uh, showmanship, that kind of magic. And then there is religious magic. And then there is charlatan magic that's somewhere in between because the charlatans use the same tricks that the uh, stage magicians use, except they're into making money off of it from the people who have magical thinking. But where is that line in the middle? Where are the charlatans as opposed to the stage magicians? Because, as you know, um, Las Vegas is like the world headquarter for stage magicians, right? Except that casinos is uh, a place that capitalizes on magical thinking. And so they like to have magic shows there because it entertains the audience, but many of the audience actually want the magic tricks on stage to be real. And so they celebritize the magician. 
Houdini was that way. And there's a, there's a lot of other stage music, magicians who are like that. And so the boundary between charlatan and stage magician is very, very nebulous. And then the boundary between religion and charlatanism is also very nebulous. Now, but would you say that there is another kind of magic that I would like to introduce to you? Go, go wait, ask your question. Okay. So when you said religious magic, do you mean kind of like the way of thinking about um, God? Like, like I'm gonna like cutting a deal with God. Like, if if I do this, then you'll give me this. Mm -hmm. Is that what you mean? Okay. Yes. Like, and also belief in anything that you don't have right in your hand. That if you, it's not in your environment, if it's a concept, then that is magical thinking. Okay. Like the Dallas Cowboys is a good football team. That's magical thinking. Why? Because I do not have any Dallas. I do not have any Cowboys. And I do not have any football here. That's all conceptualizations. Hmm. Okay. And this is what we mean by magic is, is that magic may or may not be provable someplace, somewhere, sometime, but it's not provable right here, right now. Anything that's not provable right here, right now is not worth arguing over. And yet most arguments are about things that people cannot prove right here, right now. Like an instance, uh, someone walks into a bar from the other side of town, or maybe he's from Manchester and he's in Liverpool and he walks into a bar and now he's in, uh, in football heaven, except that he's the enemy. And so he's there to defend his football team and they wind up getting in a fight. And what they're fighting over is my football team is better than yours, but the fight has to do with the fact that neither one of them can prove anything. It's all just concepts that they're arguing over. So things like rebirth and reincarnation and magical powers, whether they actually physically exist or not is irrelevant is because they're not normally are hardly ever a part of one's actual reality. So is that how is that how I uh, forget about her? Is that she's not here right now? She's not here now. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So any thoughts that come up for her, you can recognize now that's just your magical delusional thinking. Yeah. Okay. That in fact, the thing to do would be to forget all about her because anytime that you have thoughts, your longing for her is going to give you more grief. Uh, so in order or, to avoid yeah. the grief, you stop thinking about it. Yeah. Or also, if let's say everything was perfect in the relationship and I was right here right now, uh, I would find another thing to be to be longing for if it wasn't her. So it's a deeper problem of longing, right? Um, that if if my if it, the relationship wasn't a problem, I would probably be thinking of something else that I don't have. Mm-hmm. Exactly. 
So the whole point then is looking at it early in the sense of wanting things we don't have versus wanting to keep the things that we do have that we like versus wanting things after we've lost them because that's the heaviest dukkha and that's where you are with her now after you've lost her now you have the grief because of all the good times that you want to go back and have again but it started in the beginning when you didn't have her when you wanted her so next time that you start to want something you can say wait a minute wake up be careful that if you get what you want you're going to lose it how will you feel when you lose it and you can do this with any relationship it takes the relationship make it much lighter okay that uh, now, I know that that, uh, that lightheartedness about a relationship sounds funny coming from someone who has had a relationship now for more than 10 years, and it's just hunky-dory. But it is hunky-dory because um, actually because here in Thailand is a matriarchal society and, and many Westerners don't get along well with Thai women after they, I mean, they're luscious looking babes, but once you marry one, uh, the whole cultural thing really gets in the way. And, and Thailand's number one issue on that is that it's a matriarchal society. And so in that regard, I let Tam be boss. She can do anything she wants to. I need to be better at that. I because okay. I feel like I need to be the boss, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm a man. That's how I feel. Well, no, that's not how you feel. That was how you were trained. That's how I was trained. Trained to feel that way. Right. Because that's how society and culture, or right. Western at least. Because a Western uh, um, patriarchal culture trains that into most of their men. And so you can come out of that training. How? How well, come out? Um, for the number one way always is to recognize it as you're about to step in it and then don't. And over and over and over again, as you're about to step into it, don't. So one of the things that i recommend for guys uh like this so that we're, we've talked about the fact that you've lost her and she's gone and the grief that you have is now the grief that you keep giving yourself because you're still wanting something you don't have and that you can actually talk yourself into the the wisdom of that you're okay without her you got along without her before you met her. You can get along without her now. So anytime she comes to mind, you can take a deep breath and says, goodbye, babe. Don't need you anymore. And so we can deal with that there. Now, the, the dealing with the second two can be done in combination with each other. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, goodbye moment. So, as you let her go, we can walk into the next moment with a different mentality than you walked into the relationship with her in the first moment. And so I'm going to introduce to you, I don't even know whether it's on the internet or not because I've, I've known about it since I was a kid. Um, it's called Sadie Hawkins Day. Have you ever heard the term? I don't think it is part of there our was, culture. There's a, there's a dance in high school called the Sadie Hawkins dance where the girl is supposed to ask the guy. All right, so it's yeah. been reduced to a dance. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, so now that you know that dance, let's start doing that dance. All right. In other words, now it's time for you to play hard to get. That's how that's how that's how this all started. Like she came to me. Yeah. OK, yeah. well, all right. So <laughs> this is just the second verse then. Same as the first. Yeah, second verse. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that's how we're going to replace her or not is depending not. upon what happens. Because you can be satisfied without her. And say goodbye to her. So now you can say I'm satisfied. As things are right now. That I don't have to get what I want in order to be satisfied. I just stumbled across that particular statement and it seems to hit people really well. Like I could be satisfied and still not get what I want. Because that actually is part of the teaching of Paticca Samapada in that uh, here we're stopping the cycle at the point of wanting or at the point of tanha. Because eventually you can back it up just one little step into liking it, but not wanting it. I could be satisfied with just liking it. I don't have to want it. But even if I like it and want it, I can still be satisfied and not get it. I don't have to go get it to be satisfied. And in fact, the getting it is only a very temporary satisfaction. And now we have to sustain it and maintain it. And that's work. Fear of a loss. Lot of work. A lot of work. Yeah. And then uh you will lose it anyway and now the big dukkha comes yeah so it's better to not not get it in the first place better than not get it in the first place and so be satisfied that you caught it at the state of wanting without having to go grasp it and cling it and hold it and keep it and then lose it <laughs> And so this is a statement that is so anti-Western culture, but you could see that it was also anti-culture in the time of the Buddha. Because in the time of the Buddha, everybody would think that they would get gratification by ownership. Not recognizing that grief comes from the things that we hold dear, whether we get them, whether we've got them, or whether we lose them. Those things that we hold dear is suffering. And so if you've got family, don't hold the family so dear. I don't have a problem with that one. 
It's more the girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, one of the students recently had said about that when he's with the girl, he really, really likes it, but then she goes to work or off someplace and he misses her and he wants her to come back. Uh, and so he's longing for her, which means now he's dependent upon her and he's putting her in a one up and him in a one down situation so that when she comes back, he will say something like, I've missed you or where have you been? I've been waiting for you or in other words, we get ourselves hot while she's gone. And then when she does come, instead of calming off, oh, I'm so glad to see you. We just continue the hotness that we had when she wasn't there. This is one of the ways that people have arguments is they, they have a really good time and then one leaves and this guy is over here worried about it and he's worried and when she comes back, he's worried and now they're in a fight. Completely needlessly. I actually remember that happening to me one time when I was at university and I was daddling around with the students and not coming home uh, or actually uh, the appointment that I had made with this lady, an old friend of mine anyway. And so on the drive there, I got all worked up. Boy, she's going to be really pissed off because it's been hours, you know. And as soon as I walked in, she was really happy to see me. She had not worked herself up into... I didn't keep my appointment with and that blew me away. Woke me up. That was part of the awakening process of recognizing that, hey, you do not have to have the expectations of what someone's going to be like, but you can greet them new. And often we think that somebody's going to be in a bad mood when they're not. Because we've worked ourselves into a bad mood. We assume they're in a bad mood. That's the kind of worldview that we've got right now. A bad mood. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, they may not be in a bad mood at all. And yeah. so why did we work ourselves into a bad mood thinking that they were going to be in a bad mood when they're not in a bad mood, but we are? <laughs> yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's the whole point then is, is that, but now she's gone. Yeah, she's gone. And wanting her and longing for her and thinking about her is not going to do you any good in a relationship until she comes back, if she does. And she might. You don't know. Yeah. Who knows what it's going to be? I don't need her to come back, though. But you don't need her to come back. I don't. You still want her to come back. Yeah. You can still be satisfied even though she doesn't. Because it's, it's interesting. You know, you never know what's going to happen. Because you don't know what's going to happen. All you know is how you feel right now. Yeah. And that you can do something about it right now. That's all we know. Have you, there was in the, in the 1970s, I think, that there was a movie. And the name of it was Oh God. And it had John Denver and, um, uh, oh, what's his name, Gracie Allen and George Burns. George Burns played the part of God. And one of the lines in there was, uh, um, uh, this, uh, John Denver was a grocer and so he was uh, operating groceries but anyway, uh, he he was the only one who could see this 
uh, God. And so he asked him a question about it. And God said, well, I'm pretty big on the past and I'm really quite up to what's going on right now. But I don't have a clue about the future. Even God doesn't have a clue about the future. Who knows what's going to happen? We don't know what's going to happen. Question is, can you be satisfied with what is happening and get used to being satisfied with what is happening? And then whatever is happening, you can be satisfied with that. I think it's it's easier to be satisfied with not knowing what's going to happen, whereas mm -hmm. before I know what's going to happen, like, oh, I'm doomed. I'm alone now, mm -hmm. but I don't know that. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. Well, about I mean, she, doom, that's a feeling, isn't it? A feeling of terror and loss and um, yeah, exposure. Mm -hmm. Right, that's just a feeling. So when you say I'm doomed in that particular moment in time, when you're having that thought, you feel doomed. So wakey wakey. <laughs> <laughs> so that whole idea then about Sadie Hawkins means let the future pay its call on you rather than you out pursuing and looking and grasping and clinging and wanting and following your desires because they're all following your desires is going to wind up in grief happens for everybody. But if, if I'm satisfied, then everything that does happen, it's coming to me on my terms, right? Mm hmm. That's why you're, yeah, you're setting a new set of rules here before you just were following a set of rules that you'd picked up your whole life, right? Yeah. Now you're going to be following a new rule. What is the new rule? Duca Duca Naroda. If you see that, don't step in it. <laughs> <laughs> Wake up and take a look where you're stepping because you can step into a pile of crap. Don't step in it. So that thought of, oh, I'm doomed, that's a pile of crap. You stepped right in it. You felt doomed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought you were saying the other day, you were saying, uh, I think you were saying something about how the, the Arhat is, al always win is always winning because mm -hmm. he's making the rules. Uh-huh. And what is the rule? Duca Duca Naroda. That's the only rule he's got. So he always wins because he's the one who makes the rules in his life. Ah, oh, there's Duca. And then <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> and that's the game, like just like over and over, right? Right. That's the game. And we learn to play the game over and over and over again. That's how we get good at the game is because of that repetition over and over and over again. That's what you did. And you got really good at it. Good enough. Good enough. <laughs> really good sounds like a rule. That's a rule. <laughs> You're right.
And then even a higher rule is perfect. You got to be perfect. No, I just got to be, you know, good enough. And things right now. (laughs) But then I do that. I would would make that rule that when I get to Duca Neroda, I'm like, oh, Uh, there's never going to be Duca again. And then that's my new rule I made. Ah, new rule. Exactly. Mm. Well, we don't know what the future is going to be. The question is, is when it comes, are you ready for it? That's a much better way of looking at it of I've got it wired and that's never going to happen again because we don't know what the future is going to be. That's one of the problems with what you would call renunciation or taking vows. Renunciation means that in advance, I'm not going to do this, like a vow of silence or a vow of poverty or something like that. And we don't know what the future is going to be. And in fact, there's a really funny joke about it in the movie from uh, Finding Python called The Life of Brian. I remember a lot of old movies <laughs> when I, in the day when I was I- watching movies. Yeah, I, I saw some, I think I saw most of the Monty Python movies. Okay. Well, Brian was being chased by the crowd, and, and uh, while he was being chased, he fell into a pit. And there in the pit was an aesthetic, a rishi, the long-bearded dude that had been taking a vow of silence, and he'd been sitting in that pit for 20 years, and Brian fell right on him. And the first thing that he said was, oh! And then he looked at Brian very angrily and says, you made me break my vow. I've been silent for 20 years. (laughs) 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 And here he had been silent for 20 years, thinking that that vow was going to keep him silent, where in fact when Brian fell on him, it didn't happen. (laughs) Now, if... This guy had been quite awake when Brian fell. Brian could have fallen on the body, but not on the Rishi. It was the Rishi who said, ouch, the one who owned the body. You stepped on me or you you fell on me rather than just, you know, oh. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> <laughs> so this is a problem with um, always and forever or taking vows. Yeah. Is because we don't know what the future is going to be. Your own Life of Brian movie is going to happen for sure. Some <laughs> sometime. And yeah, but um, mm-hmm. even in the 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 Theravada maps, the the idea is that once you're like you attain arhatship, right? And then you can never it's like the way it's written seems like it's like, well now there's no that's, chance. That's in the later literature. Uh the actual definition the actual definition of the word arahat in the time of the Buddha, the Buddha picked up the word because it was already in common usage, as all the words he used in Pali. He didn't invent new words. He just took the words that were there. And the word arahat means one who is worthy of respect, worthy of gifts. You could almost use the word in English language as someone who is honorable. They live an honorable life. 
Now, we have taken and stolen that word and put it on the judges and politicians, some of the most dishonorable people in our community, and called them honorable. Why? Because they've got power rather than honor. So that's what is an Arahat, is one who is worthy of gifts and worthy of respect, worthy of honor. Can you uh, elaborate on what it means to live an honorable life? Uh, kind, generous, fun-loving, no problems, no worries, or let us say they present themselves that way. That they don't take things from other people, they don't lie to other people. Basically, a noble, a noble-minded one, and I'm not thinking about an honor in the sense of the politicians in the West, but rather honor in the sense that uh, the mind is noble. When the mind is noble, and you say when, because sometimes your mind is noble, sometimes it's not. Sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. When the mind is not noble, can you wake up to that and make it noble? That's the question. But you're not going to be noble all the time. But if you can wake up to this moment, then you can behave nobly. Now, what we mean here nobly is one who has a noble mind doesn't want anything. And if he doesn't want anything, then he's going to act honorably because he's not going to finagle or lie or coerce or try to fix something or uh, take something that's not given. He's not going to hurt anybody or kill somebody to get something because he doesn't want anything. He's not going to molest someone. And so, the, uh, in fact, as you hear what I'm doing is I'm going through the precepts. <laughs> so that means that an honorable one, if he is handed a glass of alcohol, he may even take a sip or two, but he doesn't have to drink it and he doesn't have to ask for a second. Then, in fact, while you're holding one glass, it's still got something in it. Nobody's going to bother you. And so you yeah. can accept a glass of alcohol and just be part of the party without having to drink it. But that takes mindfulness every time that glass comes up. Well, no, I'm not going to do that. I can hold this glass of alcohol, but I'm not going to drink it. Maybe a Mai Tai, a Bloody Mary, or <laughs> a Coors, or whatever it is. I don't have to drink it. I'm just holding it. So that would be living an honorable life. Not abstaining from alcohol because that may upset some people. Yeah, I've never been huge on alcohol, so I, I never had that problem really. Mm -hmm. I don't. My dad was a very heavy drinker. I could see that caused a lot of suffering. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you woke up to that because generally alcoholics bleed alcoholics. In fact, fathers want their sons to drink with them in many cultures. So, uh, I think that we've pretty well covered this, this topic today. I think that we've gotten somewhere with this issue of grief. And that we can back it up so that we can get to the point that we 
don't want anything. And then when you're in that state of not wanting anything, then you are worthy of respect because everyone else around you is always wanting something. Now, if I'm, if I am wanting something. Catch on to it quick. Catch on to it. Yeah, catch on that you want something. What if, what if I'm wanting, not wanting anything? Ah, desiring desirelessness. Yes, that's called spiritual materialism, wanting spiritual attainments. Yeah, of all kinds. Wanting something that you don't have exactly. So be happy that you don't have it. Desirelessness. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't have desirelessness. That's okay. I'm. I still have desires. I want. That's okay. So I have one, but when I say I want this, I say, wait a minute, I don't want that. Do I want this? No, I just like that. And so I can go through them each one at a time, still holding out that, yeah, I do want some things, just not this, that, and the other thing as they come by one by one as they occur. I can say, no, not that one <laughs> in the moment without having to do it all forever. Desirelessness, now that's a forever kind of thing. That's a concept. I see. That's a good one. That's a good one. That's a good one to nail home for sure. Or nailing at home is a concept. <laughs> <laughs> now you've cooking. Now you can see it. Thank you. Congratulations. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, more exactly is, hey, I really see that right now. Hmm. I bet I can remember it. Count on yourself that you can do it again. I can you do it again. Time. Yeah, I've done it before. It. Yeah, I've done it before. Been there, done that. I can do it again. I think I heard in one of your talks, he said something about the song that's like, Hello, darkness, my old friend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Simon and Garfunkel, right. Sound of silence. That darkness is in the mind when it comes, the wanting. Yeah, here you are. Right, I still want things. I'm satisfied that you're here. Okay. But I don't have to feel bad because I want something. But now I'm having ill will for wanting. Better just to, okay, so I want something. So what? I don't get it. That's all right. Hmm. So you can be satisfied with dukkha. Well, yeah. Like when you're picking it up and carrying it out, that's great satisfaction. As opposed to stumbling over it 
falling into it face down in the mud. That's not being satisfied with dukkha, but seeing it, but taking it out is very satisfying. I, I, when, you, when you said wakey, wakey, like that's, <laughs> I, I like that one. That's a, you wake up to the dukkha, you mm -hmm. see it. You see you it? Do, and then it's Aha, like it's very... I see it. That's a statement that the Buddha made. Aha, I see you, Myron. That's the wake up. Waking up and seeing it. That's part, this is the Eightfold Noble Path we're talking about here. Sati to remember, then the seeing of it, and then to taking the right effort with that dukkha by throwing it out. And then we build that confidence over and over and over again. I can do this. If I did it once, I can do it again. Those are the four major parts of the Eightfold Noble Path. Because when you don't see it, you you don't know where it is, right? Right. Ouch! But where's the ouch coming from? Right. It just it feels bigger than it actually is. It feels like everything's dukkha, but when you see dukkha, it's actually not very big. It's just usually like a bodily sensation. Mm -hmm. Or just a thought. Or a thought. Or just a leaning. A weaning? A leaning, a leaning into a oh, thought. A leaning. Or an, a, an expectation. Or kind of a world, it's almost pre-verbal. Yeah. But it is a thought moment. A thought yeah. moment, oh no. As opposed to a thought moment of, yeehaw, your choice. Okay, and you can develop that thought moment of, yeah, we've got this, or yee-haw, from the practice of the Eightfold Noble Path, which is that samasankatha, meaning the mind or the attitude. We call it attitude a lot. And your attitude determines your thoughts. You have the attitude of a winner, you're going to go into the game differently than the attitude of a loser. Different thoughts. And so that's the part that we're really developing is that attitude of a winner, the attitude of a lion, the attitude of a bull. You can do anything. There's no dukkha that I can't Naroda. Right. That's, <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> or another one that I like very much is my job is finished here. <laughs> I've already won. <laughs> already won, exactly. I set up the rules that way. Even before the game even started. Before the game even starts. And the game starts every moment, every right now. I see it. <laughs> well, this has been a delightful conversation, Scott. I think this has been quite useful for you. And I've I really think so. Actually. Well, let's finish now and we'll see you later. All right, I'll see you. Thank you <laughs> okay. so much. All righty. Bye bye. Bye.